The Hills Have Eyes and UFOs with special guest Kathleen Martin. Episode 44 and Season 2 Finale of the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. Welcome to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. Coming to you from the glacial dumping grounds known as the Michigan Basin. I'm Michelle. And I am Wayne. And we are a Michigan-based husband and wife educator and podcasting duo that after having a UFO sighting in March of 2018, have started to examine UFOs and other paranormal topics within Michigan and beyond. Topics include UFOs, the paranormal, conspiracy theories, ghosts, alternative history and archaeology, cryptids, and all things strange and paranormal. So sit back, grab a drink, and come along with us on this journey down the paranormal rabbit hole. All right, everybody. How's it going out there? Hello, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are. It is December 11th, 2022, and in this episode, we have a very special guest, Kathleen Martin. She is the niece to Betty and Barney Hill, and for episode 44 and our season finale, I thought this would be the perfect person to get on the show. Can it take you back to the story of 1961? Yeah, those 60s were a crazy time, man. I don't know what to make of it. Was it drugs? Was it aliens? Was it aliens with drugs? Who knows? Oh, my gosh. I mean, it could be anything. So, but yeah. Oh, nice. And we're just getting over a nice little bout of sinus infections. Yeah, I think I'm still in the max. That's why my voice sounds like this. Yeah. So, it has been a crazy season, too. What an amazing season. Uh, But this will be the last podcast of 2022. It's been an an incredible year with all the topics we've covered and the guests we've had on. Uh, This has been our our second year in this journey, and it has been an amazing time. Now, ask me, have we gotten any closer to figuring out what's going on? Uh, No. No. (laughs) No, we haven't, but boy, it, it is fun and you know, just great people along the way that we've met and that we've had a chance to talk to. I think that's part of this thing, isn't it? Isn't isn't that the whole, the paranormal, the UFOs, it gives you that little taste of, of mystery, it hooks you? Well, we've definitely connected with some new friends. Yeah. So both of us have. Yep. And uh, again, I think we got that hook in our mouth with seeing that giant flying triangle and then it's been you know pulling us down this rabbit hole ever since and which i told you on the phone today i had a conversation with my oldest brother um who i was explaining to him what wayne and i do with the podcast and i told him about our experience in 2018 and he used to live um in the state of michigan and he said um he goes well i i've seen similar things out in that direction as well so Mm -hmm. it's not just us obviously yeah but you know we are and i hope you told your brother this we are the only podcast that takes you down the rabbit hole on 
an escalator. And if it's the video of the escalator, at least the girl in the video has a suitcase, which means she's traveling, which is what I like to do. So I like to pretend I am that person on the escalator. And if you don't know what Michelle's talking about, the girl on the escalator, she's referring back to our After the Cast live show that we do about every other week on uh, YouTube. And uh, yeah, so this Saturday, December 17th, we'll yeah, it'll be, be our last, it'll be our finale episode of our first few rounds of that for the year as we close out 2022 yep and we're gonna be uh as of right now we're gonna be talking about um the interview that we did with kathleen martin and then just basically having a free-for-all general discussion about anything kind of paranormal ufo both whatever um to close that out but we will be back in january with more live streams and uh, for those of you that want to join us on December 17th, just get on over to YouTube. All are welcome to join in, in that discussion. So come on in. And always remember, when we start out 2023, if you have a story you would like to tell, we would like to talk to you. You can reach out to us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. Send us a brief summary of your experience and we'll contact you to discuss things further and try to get you or your story on the podcast. And also just a quick shout out to our patron, Hava H. You are a continuing supporter of the podcast. You've been now a supporter for about six months. So uh, we got to give you a special shout out for that. And also, if anyone else out there would like to help support the podcast, you can look into the show description for our link tree and click on that. From there, you can decide how you would like to donate to the podcast, either via PayPal, tipping us with a cup of coffee, signing up for Patreon, or buying some merch from our merch store. So all those links are provided on the link tree. Speaking of uh, giving a shout out. Uh, I think it's time to go grab some dinner after that drive that I made back celebrating my father's 97th birthday. Yes. Yes. 90, 97 years old tomorrow. So, but you know what? I think it's time to go grab some dinner. I'm hungry after that drive. Dinner? Man, I want some dessert. Have you seen those desserts that they make over there? Homemade? Oh my God. Uh, so she's got my tray slutchies. I think we're going to New Boston Coney and Grill. Yes, let's get over to New Boston Coney and Grill. Let's go. Traveling near New Boston, Michigan? Hungry? Well, then you need to check out New Boston Coney and Grill tucked away at 37005 Huron River Drive. With daily specials, homemade soups and desserts, and a staff that makes you feel like family, you will not be disappointed. Give them a try for dine-in or carry-out at 734-606-5313. You can find their page, including their menu, on Facebook. Bon Appetit. Oh, their food is always so good. Love going there. Going where? To New Boston Coney and Grill. <laughs> <laughs> See what we did there? All right, Michelle, I think it's that time. Ooh, it's time for What's in the News. Yeah, baby. Season finale. What is in the news? Jeez. All right. 
Well, <laughs> straight from BigThink.com, alien abductions, what are we to make of these bizarre stories? From succubi to aliens. Stories of abductions or other unsettling encounters have been with us for millennia. What explains them? Wayne, are you ready for this? I will hold back my comments as we read through this, but I think in that little subheading there about unsettling encounters that have been with us for millennia, I think there's something to that. Well, if there is anything confounding about the whole issue of alien abduction, it is the utter conviction of those who claim ETs have taken them into their spaceships, usually during sleep, usually to perform illicit sexual experiments, as in the hilarious Saturday Night Live skits like the one with Kate McKinnon, Cecilia Strong, and Ryan Gosling. For many people, millions in fact, this is serious business. How come? Now, this is an article, almost a, a year old, still from 2022. Yeah, uh, but it's but, very relevant for well, the absolutely. interview we just had. And well, because here we go. In the U.S., the first popular story of abduction by extraterrestrials was that of Betty and Barney Hill. The couple from New Hampshire claimed to have been kidnapped into a UFO on September 19th of 1961. The Hill's account, however, is the second abduction story that became world famous. The first is from 1957 and centered around Antonio Villas Boas, a farmer from rural uh, Brazil. Since I grew up in Brazil, this is the writer, and live in New Hampshire, I'm naturally curious. And no wonder some of my research is on astrobiology and the origin of life. All right. So one of the things I got to say is that reading this article and they're talking about Antonio Villas Boas. The farmer from rural Brazil. Yeah, there's a new uh, documentary out. Well, it's been out now for about two months by James Fox. And that is uh, the the whole of Arginia down in Brazil called Moment of Contact, the Roswell of Brazil. So still have to check that one out. Well, now that we're seeing this, art- this article now... Um, so it goes, the accounts of alien abduction. According to Villas Boas, on the night of October 16th, while he was plowing fields with his tractor, he was taken into a spaceship by a group of ETs measuring about five feet tall. He was put in a room and saw gas coming out of the walls. The gas made him very sick. Then a very attractive female, naked, with long platinum blonde hair, fire red pubic hair, and deep blue cat eyes, Wayne, stop, (laughs) came and forced him to have intercourse. Was she yelling, Oh I mean, it sounds like a, a so the alien, Nazi. the alien knew German. Lovely. Um, according to Villas Boas, her intentions were quite clear. Don't go off to stop to produce a human alien hybrid that she would raise on her planet. After he got back, Villas Boas noted he had burns on his body. A doctor from a reputable medical center diagnosed them as being radiation burns. I wonder if they were on his penis. This doctor, Alavo Fontes, had contacts with the American UFO research group, APRO or APRO. Villas Boas had no recollection how he got the burns. I just can't with you, Michelle. Just go on. 
Well, good. Um, I'm going to continue. The story gained worldwide popularity in the late 1950s. Many believed its veracity for politically incorrect reasons, claiming that a humble farmer from rural Brazil would not be able to concoct such a tale. In reality, Villas Boas was neither humble nor uneducated. His family owned large tracts of land. He later became a lawyer and practiced until his death in 1992. No doubt his notoriety helped his career. And just to add on to this a little bit, the 1950s and 60s were, especially the 60s, were really blowing up in popular culture with the um, UFO sci-fi movies and things like that that were going on, you know, Planet X and all of this stuff. So, you know, to sit there and think that this guy just because he was a farmer in Brazil, wouldn't know about these things. I mean, yeah, it was a long time ago, but it was still, people were very much into the popular culture of the day. So, Well, the article goes on to say the overwhelming majority of scientists categorically denies that narratives of abductions have any real component. I disagree. Mm. When told in earnest, most are products of various kinds of abnormal psychological states, from fantasy-prone personalities to self-hypnotic trances, false memory syndrome, sleep paralysis, environmental disturbances during sleep, or some more serious type of psychopathology. Another possibility is a misrepresentation of reality caused by post-traumatic stress, plausibly due to some unwanted sexual encounter. Wow. So they just took any sort of story of people being abducted right off the table with that one but that kind of stuff has been discounted because there have been serious scientists like these um the psychiatrist from harvard that went and interviewed all the aerial children from that ufo event and none of this stuff played out with any of those children or the adults that saw those ufos at the aerial school. So, you know, they say this a lot, but there have been tons of studies now. You know, is it post-traumatic stress? Is it this? Is it that? And, and they always come back with no. It's There's something else going on. So while we make fun of this article a little bit in this guy's story, again, we get back to there's something that happened, though. There has to be something that happened. He is obviously a successful farmer. His family was successful. Why would he make up such a story? You know, so something went on. Well, and he had to have his what's about him even to practice law. Absolutely. So, because I can't imagine that the bar exam in Brazil is, you know, any easier than it here is here in the U.S., well, continuing on, American researcher and skeptic Peter Rogerson questioned the veracity of Villas Boas's narrative, and indeed of many others, arguing that an article about alien abduction had appeared in the popular magazine O Cruzeiro in November of 1957. He noted that Villas Boas's story only started to gain popularity in 1958, and that Villas Boas could have uh, predated his encounter to give it more credibility. 
Also, Rogerson argued that Villas Boas and other presumed abductees was influenced by the sensationalist narratives of ufologist George Adamski, mm -hmm. who was very popular in the 1950s. For anyone interested in the history of abductions, Rogerson's article is an essential read. Most abduction stories have elements in common with that of Villas Boas, kidnapping into an alien spaceship, medical exams that center around the human reproductive system, or explicit sexual contact with extraterrestrials and mysterious marks left on the body. Carl Sagan, in his wonderful book, The Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark, brings these elements together, arguing for a connection between what abductees say now and what narratives of mysterious sexual night encounters have been saying for ages. All right, Michelle, keep us going here because... Well, here's a part that fits, you know, my... Mm -hmm. My... my uh, intrigue with mythologies so there are mythologies dating back to sumerian folklore of 2400 bce in which a demon in either male or female form seduces people in their sleep yep yep since augustine and thomas aquinas wrote of the incubus or succubus demons that come during sleep to have sexual relations with unwilling humans Similar stories appear in cultures across the world. Villas Boas's platinum blonde sure fits the bill. Yeah, but again, he, okay, we're talking 24, so we're talking 4,400 years ago, people were talking about this stuff and having these weird encounters back then. There were no videos, there were no movies, there's no pop culture like that. So, again, this is where people come from when they say this kind of stuff is like biblical or ancient history, demons, all of that kind of stuff. Well, here's the thing. We know how they're all the same. Any of these articles, you know that they're biased. And whenever they describe a book as a wonderful book, mm -hmm. there you go. So, all right. Going on with the, the last portion here with reality check. The nearest star to Earth is about four light years away. Our fastest spaceship would take some 100,000 years to get there. If intelligent aliens exist and came here, they must have technologies that are beyond anything we can imagine because they must be capable of fast interstellar travel, mm -hmm. passing undetected by radar, and leaving without a trace. The feats are even more spectacular considering there are thousands of abduction narratives and UFO encounters, a topic that has been making headlines, well, they say recently, we definitely say for the last few years. Well, one of the things, too, it says here, our fastest spaceship would take some 100,000 years to get there. That's right now with our current understanding of how things move in space. You know, they will... Say that we can only move, you know, close to the speed of light if we kept on increasing our speed, but you can't go any faster than the speed of light. Now some physicists and astrophysicists are saying that that's not true. I mean, we've put ourselves in this box and, and we've created these, these boundaries and said, well, nothing can move faster than the speed of light. I, we don't know that, but we've put ourselves there and said that's a rule that can't be broken 
there are so many things we don't understand that we've put a box around and limited ourselves with without even trying yet. So, you know, this in this article is a year old, but um, yeah, I'm not. See, I can't buy that. You can't rule those things out. Maybe you should read this article like Neil, try to sound like Neil deGrasse Tyson. He he poo-poos everything because, you know, Oh, I need I need the data. I I'd rather not. <laughs> OK, continuing on with the article. On the other hand, we must wonder whether these aliens are really that smart, given that they keep repeating the same experiment on human anatomy over and over again. Stop applying human mindset to an alien. They're there called go. aliens because we don't understand what it is they even are. Can they not figure out human biology or do they just have a perverted side? And are there different aliens coming to Earth? If so, how many species are out there fixated on us? I find the possibility highly improbable given their spectacular space travel technology. J. William Schaff, a paleontologist at the University of California, once said that extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence, a quote Carl Sagan made famous. In the case of alien abductions, very ordinary explanations easily surpass the absence of extraordinary evidence. Where are they? How come no serious scientists have ever been in contact with them? Scientists don't say this because they are stubborn, nasty, insensitive, or blind. What? We would love to have evidence of extraterrestrial life, especially intelligent life. That's what astrobiology wants. Wow. We would be the first to embrace the facts if there were any. The fundamental precept of science is to base claims on evidence backed by solid, verifiable data. That's true. Otherwise, why give scientific claims any credibility? That's what distinguishes what we do from fake news. I, for one, cannot wait to find convincing evidence of extraterrestrial life. I guess the writer of this article is offering themselves up for some probing. Somebody needs to be abducted. (laughs) It will most probably not be very intelligent, more like simple alien bacteria. But wow, how amazing would it be to know that life is not just a fluke that happened only here or even more amazingly that it is. Wow. Uh, You know what? Hmm. When we're looking at, you know, when you look at the sky and see how vast it is, you know, and we've said this and other people have said it too, it it would be ignorance to say that we are the only ones in existence. Yeah. Well, well, here's the thing. And what he says here about scientists don't say this just because they're stubborn, blah, blah, blah. You know, we we would love to have evidence of extraterrestrial life. Yeah, yeah, because in a physical, you know, materialistic world, that's what scientists want. You know, they they want, and it's the same argument that people who believe this is all supernatural, spiritual stuff say the same thing. It's like if you look at a, a spiritualist person and you say aliens and they go, it's not aliens. Aliens are biological. It's spiritual because yeah. you cannot give me anything that's biological. Yeah. The, uh, the author of this article was Marcelo Geisler mm-hmm. from BigThink.com. I thought, you know, I pulled up the article because it had mentioned Betty and Barney Hill. Boy, 
Remember when we talked about uh, escalators going down the rabbit <laughs> right. hole? Yeah. Yeah, that one was definitely a trap. Well, just remember that uh, the people that are going to be looking into UFOs and UAPs now are the exact same kind of person that wrote this article. So I don't know what you plan on uh, taking away from it, but we need to develop new ways to study this stuff. Because if this has been going on for thousands of years, which it sounds like it has, this phenomenon can make themselves or make itself appear as whatever's in the popular culture of the day or the beliefs of the person. So I don't know. It's so hard to say, but we've had plenty of people who've experienced abduction and things on this podcast And one's going to talk to us here in just a few minutes about their aunt and uncle and some of the stuff that she was involved in. But just to dismiss them because they have no solid evidence, quote unquote, I don't know. I don't know. It sounds like there was some solid evidence, though, that Kathleen told us. Yeah. You know, during uh, the interview. Well, I know it's I know it's difficult for people to take abduction stories seriously especially like in this story where they talk about the you know the succubi and the incubi the sexual encounters and making alien babies yeah once you i mean once you get into those stories that's where you know many of the the scientists and the critics are going to come out with their own banter so it it is what it is but what if what if that And I'm speculating, but what if that is something that these things put into your head to discourage other people from believing your story? No, it could be. I mean, what we have people that get hypnotized. We have people that can be brainwashed. I mean, look at the population right now. I don't know. Oh, well, you know what? We've got Kathleen Martin coming on. So why don't we... Tell our folks a little bit about Kathleen, yeah, so that they have a little bit better of a background going into. Yeah, this um, is a a great conversation with one of the all time, probably most famous UFO researchers out there. Not only because of who her family members were, but by her own work over the past thirty something years. Yeah, so go ahead, tell us a little bit about her. So Kathleen Martin is an award-winning researcher, author, on-camera expert, hypnosis practitioner, and international conference presenter. She is widely considered one of the leading UFO contact researchers of our time. Since 1990, she has researched and experienced the perplexing nature of contact with non-human entities. She has worked on three comprehensive studies on nearly 5,000 experiencers and has six professionally published books. In 2003, MUFON publicly recognized Kathy for her outstanding contribution of advancing the scientific study of the UFO phenomenon and demonstrated positive leadership. For 10 years, she served as MUFON's Director of Field Investigator Training and was MUFON's Director of Experiencer Researcher from 2011 to 2021. MUFON honored Kathy with its 2012 Researcher of the Year Award, and two international symposium proceedings have been dedicated to her. 
She is a benefactor and lifelong member of MUFON. Additionally, she was the recipient of the 2021 International UFO Congress Lifetime Achievement Award. In 2020, she experienced a life-changing event that radically altered her worldview and changed the course of her life's work from UFO and contact investigation to understanding consciousness and our multidimensional universe. Prior to this, she had straddled the uneasy path between scientific materialism and consciousness studies. This profound event and its aftermath led her to spiritual awakening and transformation. Her interest in UFOs and contact began in 1961, when her aunt and uncle, Betty and Barney Hill, had a close encounter and subsequent abduction in New Hampshire's White Mountains. She spent 15 years in painstaking investigation of the Hill abduction case, and as our technology progresses, she continues to seek scientific analysis of the compelling evidence. Her bestseller with nuclear physicist Stanton T. Friedman, from ni- born 1934, passed away in 2019, is captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. She and Stanton authored two additional books, Science Was Wrong and Fact, Fiction, and Flying Saucers. Her book with Denise Stoner, The Alien Abduction Files, includes her investigation of six intergenerational cases of ET contact. Her fifth book, Extraterrestrial Contact, What to Do When You've Been Abducted, is a comprehensive guide to abduction phenomena. Read her latest bestseller, Forbidden Knowledge, A Personal Journey from Alien Abduction to Spiritual Transformation, for deeper insight into Kathleen's own contact experiences, experiments, life, and works. Her books are available in all formats on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, joining us for the season two finale of the podcast, it is with our great pleasure and honor to welcome Mrs. Kathleen Martin. you for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you tonight. We're going to just jump right into these questions. And uh, I've been thinking long and hard on these if, you know, I was able to get you on because we had probably close to 20 people over the last, I want to say six months or so said we should get you on the podcast. And uh, so I started doing a little bit of digging and finding out more information about you. Um, But for some of our newer listeners and people that are um, just getting into this field and these studies, um, after reading your extensive bio and long history in the field of ufology, you mentioned that your interest had started around your aunt and uncle, uh, Betty and Barney Hill, and their abduction. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened to your aunt and uncle for those who may not be familiar with their story? Yes, absolutely. 
my aunt was a social worker for the state of New Hampshire. My uncle worked for the post office. And I was a 13-year-old girl when this happened. I had been to Niagara Falls, and I was showing Betty and Barney my photographs in probably August or September of 1961. And uh, I had been to Niagara Falls. I had a wonderful trip. And Barney said to Betty, do you think that you would like to go there? And my aunt said, yes. And so he decided to surprise her with a trip. So I've always felt a little bit involved in what happened to them. But um, they were returning home. They had spent a couple of days in Niagara Falls. They'd gone to Toronto and then over to Montreal. And they thought they'd spend the night, but they heard there was a hurricane coming up the coast. And they decided to drive home. They were well rested from the night before. So they thought they could do it. It wasn't that far. But uh, they had a second plan that they would spend the night somewhere if they grew tired. So they're driving home and they have a close encounter with a UFO that comes down, um, flies beside their vehicle for close to an hour. And then surges ahead of their vehicle when they enter uh, Lincoln, New Hampshire on Route 3, which was the US highway at that time. The interstate had not been constructed that far north. So they're driving, they've seen the craft, it's coming in closer to closer, and suddenly it swoops down over their vehicle and Barney has to stop the car in the middle of the road. And he is a confirmed skeptic. He doesn't believe that it is possible for any ETs to come here from another planet or galaxy, in fact, within our galaxy, the uh, uh, solar system. And so he gets out of the car with his binoculars and he's going to identify this craft that uh, is now about 100 feet overhead. And he's looking up, he can see that it is uh, a disc-shaped craft. Uh, there is no sound coming from it. It's just uh, hovering in the air. He steps away from the car and the, the door is open, the interior light is on, and uh, the craft then shifts to an adjacent field. So he walks toward that field, holding the binoculars to his eyes, and he sees what he, in the very first reports to, the, to NICAP in 1961, uh, were these entities looking back at him who were somehow not human. And he sees them moving around, uh, he's looking at one who remains at the window, little fin-like structures starting, start to uh, slide out from the craft, uh, and something starts to drop down from the bottom of the craft. And he immediately senses that they have a plan for him and that that plan is to, quote, capture him like a bug in a net, close quote. And that's when he forcefully 
pulls the binoculars down away from his eyes and runs back to the vehicle, screaming to Betty that they have to get out of there or they're going to be captured. So he throws the binoculars on the seat of the car and takes off down the highway as rapidly as he can. But before he enters the car, he notices that this craft is moving in his direction. And within a few blocks, he and Betty hear a series of code-like buzzing sounds striking the trunk of their vehicle. The car vibrates and a tingling sensation passes through their bodies. The next thing they knew, they're 35 miles down the highway. They uh, have vague memories. They do hear a second series of buzzing sounds, but they don't see a craft this time. Their vague memories of, are of finding themselves on a dirt road, um, seeing what is, looks like a red fiery orb that appears to be sitting on the ground. Uh, they're on a dirt road with tall trees all around and uh, there is a roadblock. There are men standing in the road. And then they're back in, uh, on the highway again. And so many perplexing questions. When they arrive home, they find shiny spots on the trunk of the car where they heard those buzzing sounds striking. A physicist, friend of a neighbor of ours, uh, told Betty if she had a compass, she should take it out, hold it over the spots, um, and she did, and it caused the compass needle to whirl. When she moved it away, it stopped whirling. She saw this, Barney saw it. My family and I were there within a, a couple of days. We saw it as well. And so uh, that was quite extraordinary. Um, also, uh, over time, we found out that Betty's dress had been torn in several places. Uh, and she placed it in her closet, and then there was a pink powdery substance on it. And uh, so that's been uh, analyzed in several scientific laboratories. Also, the tops of Barney's best dress shoes that he was wearing that night were so deeply scraped that he had to purchase new shoes. And under hypnosis, he remembered uh, being taken from the vehicle and he felt as if he were floating and his arms were outstretched and only the toes of his shoes were bumping on the rocks. Also, um, the, their watches that they had been wearing and had wound at about 10 o'clock that night uh, were now not working and never ran again. Uh, so there, there was the broken binocular strap as well vegetative matter on uh, Barney's pant legs, uh, a missing earring that was returned, um, actually two missing earrings that were returned. So uh, under mysterious conditions and in leaves, <laughs> Betty and Barney reported it to the Air Force. They were willing to talk to 
scientists to UFO investigators. Many of them were scientists. Walter Webb, who was the NICAP investigator, was an astronomer at the Hayden Planetarium in Boston, Massachusetts, and had worked with Dr. Alan Hynek on the satellite program as a volunteer. So um, there were some, some very good people investigating this. There were also uh, people, members of the Navy and the Air Force who were helping uh, Betty and Barney to, to cope with this uh, incredibly startling and for Barney uh, frightening experience. And uh, they never intended to have this made public. They, because Barney had become ill, uh, he had a life-threatening uh, bleeding ulcer episode and was hospitalized and had to take a leave of absence from work. He ended up being referred to Dr. Benjamin Simon in Boston. And Dr. Simon uh, was an expert in his field because during World War II, he had uh, been the chief uh, neuropsychiatrist in the psychiatric unit at the Mason General Hospital on Long Island. And he was treating uh, soldiers who were returning from the war with conversion hysteria, shell shock, that sort of thing. And Barney had a physiological condition that was psychogenically induced. And so he was the perfect person for Barney to see to resolve the anxiety that he was experiencing. Uh, Betty didn't have that level of anxiety. She was just uh, very curious what, about what happened. She wanted the answers. They uh, were treated by Dr. Simon for six months uh, successfully. And um, in 1965, the fall of 1965, there was a violation of confidentiality. A friend of Betty's, who was the wife of a naval officer, spoke with a newspaper reporter in Boston, Massachusetts. And he then did an investigation on his own. He talked to the Air Force. He talked to NICAP. He even found a dozen witnesses to the craft that night in that location in upstate New Hampshire. So all of that information is available in my book with the um, nuclear physicist, Stanton Friedman. Uh, the title is Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. And I updated the book. Unfortunately, Stanton has passed, uh, but I updated the book in 2021 for the 60th anniversary with new scientific data and uh, evidence that has been analyzed in scientific laboratories. That's such an amazing story. Um, answer me this question when it comes to the hypnosis part. Was it only through hypnosis that your aunt and uncle could recall their abduction or was there like little glimpses of it between the time that they were abducted to they were able to see uh, the psychiatrist that was able to do the hypnosis? Over time, they remembered more. 
before the hypnosis. Now, uh, starting about 10 days after their trip, Betty had five dreams. And uh, those dreams uh, contained both some fantasy material, but also uh, some glimpses of what had actually occurred. I wondered about that for many, many years. And then finally, I was able to um, talk with a psychiatrist who told me that, yes, that can happen, where if you have anxiety and you have these dreams immediately before you wake up in the morning, that you could have that combination of uh, real memories, but combined with uh, a little fantasy in order to work through that anxiety. Um, Betty always had more memories and clearer memories than Barney had. And I think that's because he was the one who was standing in the field. They sort of took control of him uh, at that point, but uh, only later uh, when they were taken from their vehicle did uh, Betty really panic and, and have a, a difficult time. But he was already dealing with like psychological stressors with uh, being in the war and things like that, right? He had served in World War II. Yes, uh, mm -hmm. he wasn't hospitalized for that. He was right. hospitalized because he um, uh, was, uh, I don't know if it was a landmine or a grenade, but something uh, exploded and he had scars on his abdomen and chest. From that, it also uh, knocked out his, his teeth. So he had to wear dentures. So he had that occur when he was a young man. Now, Kathleen, did Betty or Barney have any physical marks on their flesh after the alien examinations? Well, I asked Betty about that. And of course, that was the first. So <laughs> no one thought to even look at the flesh for unusual patterned marks. Um, but she told me that Barney was sore. His, his neck and his shoulders were sore. Now, I don't know if that came from him uh, being taken by these entities to the craft or if it uh, was the result of pulling the binoculars down away from his eyes. Um, if he was, of course, he was wearing that strap. So right. that could have done it, too. Now, you did mention briefly something about a breach in confidentiality. What happened with that? Is is that how the the story originally got out there? Yes, it is uh, the way the story got out there. I found a letter. I'm, I'm the executor and trustee of the estate. So, and I set up a collection for the University of New Hampshire, the entire Hill collection, except for the work that I have done. I've done extensive investigation and research myself, but I also have the original collection. And in that is a letter that uh, John Luttrell, the newspaper reporter, who was an award-winning newspaper reporter, wrote to Betty and Barney. And he named the woman, and he said uh, that he had been talking 
with her about their experience. And he thinks that it is uh, the most credible that he has ever heard about. And so he wanted to interview Betty and Barney. And uh, they said, absolutely not. And he did show up at their house one night and uh, they would not speak to him, but he did interview all of their neighbors. He wrote about this in articles for the Boston Traveler and um, he had quite a bit of information about what had occurred from all of the, the people that he'd interviewed regarding the case. Um, I've recently reviewed what he wrote and uh, he did not make them out to look like kooks. He was incredibly respectful. He talked about their status in the community, their work in civil rights. Um, Barney had been appointed to the uh, US uh, Civil Rights Commission on Civil Rights as a representative for the state of New Hampshire and, and their political work in the state. So uh, he was characterizing them as being credible, responsible individuals. The, the thing that I really object to is he gave their address and telephone number in the newspaper. So uh, that resulted in Betty and Barney's uh, having to leave their home because uh, they were, uh, they had other reporters at their door. They, their phone was ringing off the hook. And uh, so they drove down to my grandparents' house in Kingston, New Hampshire, which was about 20 miles from Portsmouth. And uh, I lived across the street from my grandparents and we met as a family and decided what to do now. Barney was incredibly distressed. Betty was a little less distressed, but concerned that she and Barney might lose their jobs and their standing in the community. And that they said that not all of the information in the article was accurate. Um, and so it was, it was very difficult for them. We met as a family and, and made the decision together that Betty and Barney should speak about what happened because the story had already been told. And in fact, I have a copy of a newspaper in Australia that published that article. So it went around the world and uh, Betty and Barney did agree to speak in Dover, New Hampshire at the Unitarian Church. They were Unitarians. Uh, it was a November night in, in 1965, cold, uh, sleeting, and the church was full. The basement of the church was full, and there were people standing outside just hoping to hear a little bit of what they were saying. They were introduced by the public information officer from Pease Air Force Base, and they told a little bit about their sighting. They did not talk about their abduction. Well, Kathleen, you have spent so many years 
working with this, do you think if it wasn't for your aunt and uncle's experience, do you think that you would have still ended up on the same path that you've been on? I can say with certainty that I would not have ended up on this path because my family was interested in politics. I was interested in politics. I thought about, you know, following Betty's and Barney's uh, lead in, in working in the community and in the state. They were, and I, were invited to Lyndon Johnson's inauguration in 1965 for the work that we did on his campaign. And we went to the inauguration. It was one of the best and most exciting experiences in my life. You know, so I wanted to do that at the time I was thinking about uh, going to medical school when I grew up. And um, I did end up going to college, graduated from college, did some graduate work, and ended up um, first in social work and then in education. Okay. Well, something that you said earlier um, in results in regards to the findings, um, the pink substance on your aunt's dress. Yes. What did they say about that as far as like the... I guess the the molecular compound or any sort of the scientific. Um, yes, there there were some anomalous findings on the okay. dress. Uh, there was uh, protein found on the dress with no explanation of how it got there. Um, it was protein found on Earth, not protein found uh, somewhere else. But you know, maybe the extraterrestrials have that same protein, or maybe they're, they've been here long enough for it to be in their craft. Okay. Um, the, it was sort of divided into two camps. There, one of the scientists, Phyllis Budinger, who uh, has her master's degree in, anal, in, in organic chemistry, she was an analytical chemist for BTP Amico, formerly Standard Oil, for 35 years. And she did a major analysis on Betty's dress. And she noted uh, the degradation of the fiber of the dress. She thought that it might have been uh, a fungus, but that was speculation because nobody has been able to find spores on that dress. We just know that there are uh, pink fungus and it fluoresced under a UV light. So uh, that uh, it could be she theorized and others have theorized have been on the floor of the craft and also on the non-humans hands. And that uh, it, her dress was most saturated around the sleeves where they held her when they were escorting her um, at the top of the zipper where uh, the Uh, examiner didn't know how to operate a zipper. So he held it and pulled it apart, tearing the stitching and tearing the zipper itself on one side. Um, So, and also around the hemline where the dress dropped onto the floor. So um, that's, that's speculation. We don't have anything conclusive regarding how Uh, it got there and there were no mold spores found. 
another doctor with a, um, a PhD uh, in plant, uh, plant genetics believes that it was yeast. And he suspects that Betty's dress was exposed to uh, a disinfectant or uh, an agent that killed all of the bacteria and yeast. Um, not uh, and viruses, I mean, sorry, I'm having a little COVID brain. Um, and that what occurred is that this uh, uh, yeast was able to grow on the dress in the absence of the bacteria and the viruses, um, and that it had deposited there in the same way from hands in the floor. And that's what happened to the dress. More recently, there has been a new analysis on Betty's dress at uh, a university chemistry department, and they found rare and expensive metals on Betty's dress with a very high melting point. So I was really excited about that. What about uh, radioactive uh, traces of any type of material? You know, some people have re reported that uh, they've gotten radiation burns. Some material around them has um, absorbed some of that radioactivity and, and shows a little bit of a, a reaction when a Geiger counter is used against it. Was any testing for radioactivity done on those materials or the car? Uh, no, not that I'm aware of. Now, this was 1961. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> people just didn't know what to do. This was the first scientifically investigated case of alien abduction yeah. in the United States. Now, you have since gone on and, and become a world-renowned UFO researcher and, and looking at cases yourself. Has there ever been a case you investigated that surprised or shocked you like more than anything to do with your aunt and uncle? Oh, absolutely. Over the years, I had several cases that shocked me with the level of evidence. And I, you know, I tried to take it to the public and uh, the media uh, simply were not interested because they said that the public was not ready for this level of evidence. Um, you know, they people aren't even sure that UFOs are real. And if we show them photographs of the entities coming in or video of the entities coming in to abduct three credible witnesses, uh, that uh, the public might freak out about that. So yeah, that is one case that uh, I had the great privilege to work on. I was the director of the Mutual UFO Network's uh, experience or research team for 10 years. I just retired in 2021. And uh, this was a, a case that MUFON investigated. I knew the people before MUFON investigated the case. I had been on the case um, several years prior to that, but there was um, a high level of fear. And I, I didn't think the witnesses were ready to 
uh, have an investigation. I didn't, my first uh, concern is for the witnesses themselves. I would not want to induce trauma in them or uh, force them to recall something uh, sooner than they were ready to recall. But um, so I had uh, been introduced to these three people by Stanton Friedman. Well, I actually knew one of them. One of them was Chris Bledsoe. He has a famous case. He uh, was abducted in North Carolina for what he thought was the first time along the Cape Fear River where he was fishing. And years ago, I looked into that case and interviewed Chris. And these two women were highly respected paranormal researchers and investigators, uh, spirit hunters of the South. They were going around to plant old plantations. They had a film made about them. Um, and they had publications. Stanton was impressed by their level of physics, their knowledge of physics. And so he introduced them to me uh, because they wanted to go to the home of a confirmed abductee. And so I, I uh, met both of the women and then I agreed to uh, ask Chris if he would be willing to have them at his house to do an experiment. And so he said, yes, they went to his home. It's 10, he, well, let me say first, they were very strict in their protocols. No cell phones, nothing that would in any way skew the evidence. Um, they went to his home early uh, and one of them has a master's degree in archeology span she did, uh, she did a lot of background checking on him and his family. Also, uh, the other is a historian and she did the genealogy of Chris and his family uh, in preparation for this work they were going to do. They had a Bell and Howell camera set up 15 feet away from the smoking tree. And to give you a little information about Chris's smoking tree, um, he could take photographs and clothing from people who uh, had fatal illnesses and put them in this tree and ask for healing, and they were healed. I know of one woman who had stage four ovarian cancer who was healed. And uh, I know that uh, Colonel Dr. John Alexander investigated the case. Uh, Jim Semivan, high up in the CIA, also investigated the case. So there was government involvement in this as well. Chris has a, a credible case, and there's a lot of interest in this case because he's also having Marian apparitions where he's been given some prophecy. I didn't know that in 2015, when I introduced them to one another. I think the first uh, vision occurred, uh, or materialization occurred in 2018. But anyway, so they're there, it's 10 o'clock at night, the equipment is set up by the tree. There is a, a row of hedge, like a hedge row of bushes. 
And they're on the other side of those bushes overlooking a garden. So they're a distance from that tree. They're holding their equipment in their hands, a recorder, voice recorder, a, um, a EVP box, um, a, a 35 millimeter camera. And Chris is attempting to call in Kraft because he's capable of doing this and also orbs. So if the moon is about three quarters full, they're looking up and Chris says, I think that might be one of them coming in now. So they're standing there, they're watching this light in the sky that's growing larger and larger. And uh, one of the women, Pam, is asking questions and receiving what might be EVPs. And then all of a sudden, they realize that they're standing there, they're holding on to one another, they are nauseated, they're weaving back and forth, and they no longer have the equipment in their hands, they don't know what happened to it. They look around and find it underneath that hedgerow of bushes. They pick it up, they decide to go inside the house, and so they pick up that a video camera, and they walk into Chris's house, and his wife is there, um, dressed in her nightgown and robe, and and said, "Where have you been?" And they said, "Oh, just just outside." And she said, "No, you weren't. I was looking for you. You weren't there." And she said, "Do you know what time it is?" And they they had no idea. They thought maybe about eleven o'clock. It was one o'clock in the morning. And so uh, this ended up becoming a MUFON investigation. And um, I am also a, a hypnotherapist and a quantum healing hypnosis practitioner, but I use for the forensic method so that I won't lead the witnesses in any way. I uh, hypnotized the two women. I also did an analysis on the few seconds of video that the camera had taken. And what I discovered during my analysis of the video was one, uh, well, it was, it was dark. You could hardly see the tree, but you could see a lot of blue orbs in there. And then you could see uh, a indigo colored light suddenly shoot out across the screen and it didn't go all the way, it stopped. And then another one came out underneath it. And so that was going on. And then I found what appeared to be an entity dropping off this beam, but she wasn't fully materialized. And I say she, because it looked like she was wearing like a dress of something like that. And uh, she became uh, more material as and denser as she approached the ground. I, there was another entity that was sitting on the ground. And this entity had almost a face like a, a dog or a teddy bear, a very weird face. Um, he was wearing something on his back and all of a sudden 
He was enveloped in blue light and he lifted up off the ground. And you could see that he was sitting on some kind of device. He's holding a blue light in one hand. And uh, that chair is turning from side to side as he is looking down below. I think he was looking for the people that he was going to abduct. And then um, there was a bright flash of light and there was one entity standing closer to the camera. And uh, so they were all wearing headgear. You couldn't get a good look at this one's face, just uh, maybe just a little bit of two eyes, uh, a uh, chiseled nose, kind of a large chiseled nose, and a little tiny mouth. Uh, quite extraordinary. And uh, I have uh, actually shown that video and some of the stills at a UFO conference that I spoke at in Michigan um, a couple of years ago. Maybe it was 2021 that I spoke there. Um, so it's, it's simply amazing, but the public isn't ready for this yet. <laughs> hey everyone, we hope you're enjoying the podcast. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors and some friends of the podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, this is Ray Shemansky, author of the Alien Shades of Grey's trilogy, and you're listening to Wayne and Michelle on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Hi, I'm Greg Little, co-author of Origins of the God with England's Andrew Collins. It's a great book. It's about UFOs and the paranormal, and it gives an explanation. It's not what you think. And you are listening to Wayne and Michelle on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. of Follow the Reaper podcast, where every episode we examine first and secondhand true paranormal encounters. And you're listening to Wayne and Michelle on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Hi everyone, this is Jared Murphy of NotAliens.com and you are listening to Wayne and Michelle from Michigan UFO Sightings. 
and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. Hey there, it's Richard Serrett, occasional weekend guest host of Coast to Coast AM and host of The Conspiracy Show. And you're listening to Wayne and Michelle's Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. What's up, everyone? This is Burton. And Aaron from Lost in the Dark podcast. And raise your horns because you're listening to Wayne and Michelle from Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. What is up, you guys? It's your girl, Gemma Jade from Gemma Jade YouTube, Moon Bear Oracle, Paranormal Chop Shop. You're here listening to Wayne and Michelle with the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. Hi, this is Chris Lato of the Chris Lato YouTube channel, retired F-16 pilot turned UAP investigator, and you are listening to Wayne and Michelle on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Hi, this is Terry Lane Keel, director of MUFON memberships, investigator, demonologist, and author of Alien Healing, the true story of a benevolent extraterrestrial. And you're listening to Wayne and Michelle on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Hello everyone, this is Michael Schrett, military aerospace historian and private pilot, and you are listening to Wayne and Michelle at the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast, and we're glad to have you with us today. Hi, this is Sev Talk from MUFON and the author of You Have the Right to Talk to Aliens and the host of Alien Spirit TV with Sev on YouTube. You're listening to Wayne and Michelle at the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. What's happening, ladies and gentlemen? This is Big Willie with the UFO Garage podcast, where we're all about UFOs, aliens, and all things weird. I also run a podcast, Band of Bearded Brothers, with my brother Micah, B-O-B-B for short, and you are listening to Wayne and Michelle with the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. So take a seat and buckle up as they educate us on all things woo. Now, was this case when you investigated Chris Bledsoe in that area. Did you chronicle any of this in any of your books? No, it has not been in any of my books. Okay. Okay. I thought maybe this was uh, something you had put in your, one of your books. Cause I, I've been looking at the titles here and, you know, I'm a science teacher and I see the, the title science was wrong. And so I, you know, at one point, at some point here, I wanted to ask you wrong about what, what, what do you, what's going on with that? But, uh, <laughs> well, that wasn't, that really wasn't our title. 
Um, Stanton and I wrote that book. Each of us wrote seven chapters. And okay. uh, uh, the original title was It's Impossible, Isn't It? Because Stanton was uh, talking about how um, people on high were proclaiming that all of these things were impossible. And um, when it ended out, uh, up the, they were wrong. And those who were the scientists who did have the evidence, who did have the invention or the findings, uh, were oftentimes ostracized from the scientific community, ridiculed, uh, uh, accused of hoaxing or insubordination. And uh, so uh, that's what the book is about. We've, take, we've gone back uh, about 150 years in, in uh, science, uh, right up to uh, more modern times. And we have also included a section in the book on UFOs, uh, ET contact, and also um, uh, telepathy, um, the uh, meta-analyses of the studies that have been done on telepathy. Well, Kathleen, you mentioned Michigan, so I have to ask because, of course, Michigan is a hot spot. Anything from, you know, the 1966 swamp gas, the Heineck debacle, to the most recent airing of the Netflix um, Unsolved Mysteries with the 1994, um, specifically March 8th. Um, with you being involved with MUFON, did you have anything to do with the investigations that were held in Michigan with that with that case? No, I did not. Um Generally, when uh, there is an investigation, it is done by the MUFON team in that state. Okay. The only reason that I uh, went in was in, in the case that I spoke of is because I was the director of the ERT and because uh, I was aware of the case and was helping those women um, before MUFON investigated. Okay. Well, you had mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, government involvement when it came to um, Chris Bledsoe. And, and I've heard the stories that kind of revolved around what kind of was going on in his property. We have a friend that we interviewed a couple times on here with his own orb stories and amazing stories of uh, where he's at in North Carolina. And as of recently, though, and I did talk to our state director, um, uh, Bill Konkoleski here in Michigan, not too long ago and interviewed him. And I asked him pretty much the same question I'm going to ask you. There was a New York Times article that were that's now saying that many military UFO reports are just foreign spying or airborne trash. And it seems like they're trying to put this genie back in the bottle that they've released the, or at least it was leaked with the Navy pilots and their videos of the Tic Tac and things like that. What do you make of the U S government's involvement now in UFOs and UAPs? Well, first of all, I want to say that I know and uh, appreciate and respect Bill Konkoleski. Um, and he's a very good investigator. 
with regard to um, those people in the government who are giving people an out, um, you know, the, that, the, the government has a history of this. Uh, dating back to the 1940s, they uh, give themselves some time in order to uh, observe the public's reaction. And if they believe that there could possibly be some public hysteria, then they will retract um, the information. They won't go further. Um, what I have to say about uh, you know the orbs, the craft, etc. Well, yes, of course, some of them could be experimental aircraft, but those experimental aircraft are using our technology, or maybe just a little bit ahead of what we're aware of. What we are seeing and what the military has reported are trans uh, uh, craft capable of transmedium travel. They can work as efficiently under the water as in the atmosphere, as in space. Uh, that's not us or any uh, country on this planet. You know, the, the, uh, the government, the Pentagon did a study uh, dating back to the late 1940s and uh, they wanted to know, and, and I wrote about all of this, the history of government involvement in the investigation of UFOs with Stanton Friedman, and uh, it's called Fact Fiction and Flying Saucers. But so the government uh, wanted to know what these things were way back in the 1940s that could outfly and outmaneuver anything on our planet. And they first had to look at all of the foreign countries and then and they came to the conclusion that it was not from this planet, but then they covered it up. Well, maybe the government is panicking and they're deciding that they are going to cover it up again um, so that they won't distress uh, the American public. From my view of what I'm seeing in the American public is they really don't care. Uh, if the UFOs are present, even e either they already know this because they've been watching television shows about it, or they they don't know and they're more interested in another topic. This isn't impacting their lives. Yeah. Now, in terms of the the craft that has been observed, you, you know, your listeners might have heard this and might have uh, interviewees might have discussed it. Uh, but something very impressive about these craft are that they can hover at 80,000 feet without moving for hours on end. They can descend to 40,000 feet in a second or less. And we can't do that. No one on this planet can do that. They can... Uh, drop to 50 feet above the churn and the ocean. And there can be another craft the size of an aircraft carrier underneath the water. And the smaller craft, the Tic Tac, bounce back and forth like a ping pong ball, as if communicating somehow with this other craft. We can't do that kind of thing 
we can't, uh, we just can't. Uh, also, the uh, whatever is powering this craft is capable of knowing where our military is going to be before the military arrives. And, you know, so there's some kind of telepathy because they're not, uh, this information is not being communicated uh, according to what I've heard uh, on radios or anything like that. Uh, so um, they're capable of things that uh, we just don't understand yet. Yeah, it, it is very interesting because, you know, I was thinking about this the other day and asking some people um, when this article came out from the New York Times, when they were the ones that, you know, kind of broke the whole uh, 2017 leak of the videos, the UFO videos and, and the pilots and, and their story, they were kept confidential. And then um, now it's like, okay, are you saying that these pilots like Commander Fravor, Ryan Graves, who've been out there speaking about this on Joe Rogan and, you know, you name it, they've been all kinds of places. Now, are you saying that they are liars or were people in the government using them? Or is it somebody in the media like Jeremy Corbell or you know, uh, other people within the government that wanted a government office and money. Uh, I mean, it, it just seems very like shady and it puts a shady uh, coating on these pilots that as far as I can tell are very honorable men have been highly trained. They know their jobs and I, I, I kind of feel like they're trying to color them uh, either as liars incompetent or they're using them and uh it's very unfortunate because i honestly i'm with you i don't know if the the public really cares too much since there doesn't appear to be any kind of a a threat regardless of what the government says and and there i mean you could look at it as a possible you know airline crash incident maybe they run into one of these things as quote-unquote a threat but they haven't really done anything other than kind of show off in front of the pilots and i i don't know what what do you think well i think that the historically the government uh takes this stance and uh, I think that the government is becoming a little bit frightened because they've sent their people out and their people uh, have come back with physiological effects. Um, people, uh, according to Dr. James Lukatsky, who was the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and Colm Kelleher and um, George Knapp in the book that uh, they wrote Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, um, talk about people who have been exposed to uh, these kinds of things, and they take them home with them. They uh, have frightening experiences in their homes with blue orbs that fly at them and give them burns, and you know, dark, shadowy figures hovering 
over their beds and bothering their children. And then it's spreading out in the neighborhood. And uh, that's, I, I think I know what that is. I think that these are lower vibrating entities. I don't think that they are um, the uh, advanced ETs. That's my personal opinion. Yeah. Um, and I have uh, experience to back that up. Also, I've been listening to uh, Dr. Gary Nolan. Yes. Yep. Uh, who is highly credible. I hope that nobody accuses him of lying because, I mean, he was nominated for a Nobel Prize. This guy is an outstanding scientist, and it would break my heart if uh, he ends up being attacked and discredited. But he's been studying brains of these people who have been injured by uh, powerful electromagnetic fields. And he initially thought that he was looking at brain damage, but then he discovered that it's a thickening, uh, more of a connection of the neural networks uh, and that it uh, has certain effects. It, it makes people more intuitive, uh, more spatially aware. Um, they might be more intelligent. And those are all things that experiencers uh, have reported as commonalities in the three major studies that I've worked on with about 5,000 experiencers. So all of it makes sense to me. And I certainly appreciate Dr. Nolan for stepping forward and giving us this information. Also, the Department of Defense, I believe it was in March or April, released uh, a number, more than a thousand pages of documents regarding um, the uh, burns uh, to individuals who have come too close to craft the physiological effects. And our own John Schusler, uh, wh who was at one point MUFON's uh, uh, executive director, I always forget that word executive and I want to say international instead, but he was the executive director for the organization. And in that release was a report that he wrote. Uh, it was a, a book really. And I actually have it on my bookshelf. I purchased it many years ago when he wrote it during the 1990s, but he was the major investigator on the uh, Betty Cash and Vicki Landrum case in East Texas, where both women were burned so badly and for radiation burns, ionizing radiation. And uh, that was in the record. And a lot of uh, other in interesting information, including a uh, report by the Defense Intelligence Agency itself, on the physiological effects uh, of uh, coming too close to these craft. Well said. I tend to agree, especially about uh, Dr. Gary Nolan. I think he's, uh, I think he's pretty legit, and he he's uh, he does say that he was brought into this by the the CIA coming to him to look at certain individuals that they kept confidential because of their top secret clearance and things like that. And now he's, 
involved, which, you know, I hope it sheds some light on some of this with uh, experiencers. But as we start to close down this uh, interview and and let you get back to, uh, you know, getting your rest and recovering, I'm also recovering from a a pretty nasty uh, cold and sinus infection myself. Um, Where do you see the future of ufology going? You know, that's really difficult for me to predict. I hope that the scientists and high-ranking military officials will continue to go forward. And I know that military officers uh, have petitioned Congress to allow them to speak without uh, facing consequences. And uh, if that is passed, you're going to see uh, a lot more disclosure because I know from having spoken with them that there are military people, uh, quite a few military people who have had close contact or been uh, on board these craft, taken to craft against their will. And, uh, you know, so I, I'm, uh, my great hope is in them that they will lead us into further knowledge. I, I don't think we're ever going to have a president of the United States stand up and say, guess what, folks? But um, I, that's where I hope it's going to go. Okay. I know that there's been a lot of media involvement in uh, for the past 10 years, at least where... Um, It's not always entirely accurate. They can film hours of interviews and and pick a few minutes or a few seconds out. Um, So I'm happy to see the scientific community back. They were there back in the 50s and the 60s, people with doctorates, people, uh, academics and scientists. Uh, like Stanton, he didn't have a doctorate, he had a master's, but he was an industrial scientist, a nuclear physicist. And so I look to those people. I've always had a tremendous amount of respect for them. They will have the funding to do the work. Whereas that's something that people like myself and people in the UFO community have not had. I've fi- I have financed everything I've done myself. Yeah. Well, um, what are your future plans? Do you have any lectures or conferences coming up? Um, I'm waiting. I, um, I'm not going to be uh, go- lecturing as uh, widely as I used to, uh, unless I can get over this fatigue from, you know, the, from this COVID thing. So, uh, but I'm, I'm staying active in the field. I have, still have a lot of questions. I don't have all the answers yet, and I probably never will, but I'm looking into that, uh, not whether abductions are real, not whether UFOs are real, but why they're here. That's what I'm exploring now, what they have to say to us about why they're here. 
Well, one of our famous questions that we like to ask Kathleen is, do you have any ties to Michigan besides doing the presentation here? Ties to Michigan. No, I don't have any family members in Michigan. I have friends there like Bill Konkoleski. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. there you go. So there's your, there's your tie. Uh-huh. <laughs> Like seven, what is it? The seven steps to Kevin Bacon or whatever. It's the seven steps to Michigan. Oh, the, the seven degrees of separation. Yeah. All right. And uh, lastly, do you want to let people know where they can find your books and maybe get in contact with you if they want to send you their account or how they should go about doing that? Yes. um, You can go to my website at Kathleen with a K dash Martin, M-A-R-D-E-N dot com. And um, there I have many articles there for you to read. Uh, If you're having negative experiences, there are two articles on uh, how to try to make it stop. All of my autograph copies of all six of my books, uh, you can set up a consultation with me, or you can um, book a hypnosis session with me. I don't do it online. You have to come to Florida. I have people who fly in here. And uh, also, um, any upcoming conferences that I'll be speaking at in 2023 uh, will be there now. You can see where I spoke this year. That's what's up right now. So, um, boy, it was a pleasure to speak with you again. Uh, All of my books are available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble in all formats. And also you can probably order them from any bookstore, but it's easier online. And if you want an autograph copy, they need to go to your website to get it. Yes, they do. I'll be happy to mail one to you. Uh, You you only have to use PayPal. Awesome. I think I'm going to take a look and see which one I want to get first and get it ordered from you and get it autographed. So uh, these look fantastic. And once again, Kathleen, it's been awesome having you on. We can't thank you enough. It was a a truly an honor and a privilege to be able to have this conversation with you, even though both of us are sick and trying to recover, but this was amazing. And uh, we can't thank you enough for joining us tonight. Well, thank you so much. And it was such a pleasure to speak with both of you and uh, best wishes on healing. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Take care. You too. close out 2022. Yep. And just when you thought you might have had some questions about the believability of people that say they've been abducted, then you hear the Betty and Barney Hill case kind of summarized for you right from a family member who's been investigating it for 15 years. Well, in other podcasts that I've listened to that Kathleen has been on, her story has not strayed. No, not at all. And neither, you know, did Betty and Barney's you know, change over the years. And, um, 
I know there's all kinds of evidence and stuff that they've provided, whether it was with hypnotic regression or some type of a star map that I think Betty drew out while under hypnosis and it turned out to be the Pleiades star system or something along those lines. I'm not 100% familiar with the case, though I do have one of her books now and probably will get the others here once I finish reading this one. But man, just, yeah, what a, what a way to end 2022 and our second year of doing this podcast. Just amazing stuff. Well, remember, if you would like to support the show, there are so many options. You can buy us a cup of coffee, sign up for Patreon, donate through PayPal, Anchor. Just check out everything through Linktree. So that will take you to all sorts of options, including uh, those those shirts, rocking the swag. Yep, absolutely. And don't forget, once again, if you have a story you want to tell us, you can always email the podcast at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com and uh, let us know what's going on and we'll get your story out there. Don't forget, everybody, this Saturday, which will be December 17th, 2022, will be our last After the Cast live show for the year. So come hang out with us on YouTube and we're going to discuss our interview that you just finished listening to and uh, it will be live. So we will be hanging out, talking with everybody and just having a good conversation. But with that being said, I think it's time for us to get going and get ready for a new year's party. Yeah. Have a great end to 2022, everyone. Yes. Everybody have a great, great new year. And we'll catch you on the other side. And always remember, keep those eyes to that sky. You have been listening to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. You can reach us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at mi underscore UFO and join our Facebook group by searching for Michigan UFO sightings and paranormal encounters. So until next time.